0: In verse 2, we can see that the Pharisees are, in fact, testing the Lord Jesus Christ with a very controversial question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, in order for us to understand the import of this question, you have to know why that question was controversial in those days. And it was actually controversial for a couple of reasons in this specific context. The first reason is that in the days of Jesus, all of the people were divided into two basic camps. And these two basic camps related to two major groups or schools of thought that were headed up by two major theologians. Two different rabbis, two different rabbinic schools of thought. In the first school, you had Shammai, who was a very conservative theologian and rabbi of his time. And then you had the school of Hillel, who was also a very influential theologian, but he was more on the liberal side. Uh, He's someone that we would call a a progressive uh, theologian. And on this particular topic, they couldn't be further apart. The difference between the two rabbis was very clear. And we'll get into the differences that they, that they promoted in just a minute. But here we can see that when the Pharisees ask Jesus this loaded question, they know that they're putting him on the spot. They know that they're putting him in the middle of a huge controversy that already exists in their culture and among the people. So the question behind their question is actually this, who is Jesus going to side with? Will he identify with the conservatives and make the liberals upset? Or will he side with the liberals and make all the conservatives upset? It would seem, and this is only uh, by appearances, but it would seem, at least in their eyes, that no matter how he answers the question, someone's going to end up getting mad. And that can cause problems for the Lord Jesus Christ because it can undermine the commitment that he displays toward a a large portion of his constituency. Imagine if there was a debate in the Christian church, and I got up behind this pulpit, and I just blasted one side of the debate, and I just reinforced the other side of the debate. Well, if we had a mixed multitude here, half half the crowd would get up and say, well, I guess there's no place for us here. And in some cases, that's absolutely necessary. In other cases, not so much. Well, this is a situation where this will become very necessary as we'll see as we continue on. But one of the things that the Pharisees are doing is setting Jesus up. There's a danger here, there's a threat, but that threat is to his ministry. The other reason this is such a controversial question is that the answer that Jesus provides could also put his own life in danger. Jesus doesn't just get to answer any which way he wants without knowing what the possible repercussions are. Uh, You remember the very reason that John the Baptist was put to death, he was decapitated, was that he confronted King Herod about his unlawful marriage. John said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What was John doing? He was simply Reinforcing the biblical teaching from Leviticus chapter 18 about not being able to marry those who are near kin. So here Jesus is faced with the same possibility. Depending on what he says, it's possible that he will offend King Herod. Now, the reason I mention that and the reason I say that that's a real possibility from this text is that in verse 1, Mark says that Jesus arose from the place in which he was and he came to the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. So Mark wants us to know where this conversation is taking place. In Mark's gospel, if, you, if you've been with us so far, you know that the last place we located Jesus was in Capernaum. That's way up in the north on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. But now Jesus travels all the way south. He comes into the region of Judea. And then what does he do? He crosses over the Jordan River. This is exactly where John the Baptist had his ministry, very close to the wilderness of Judea. And this puts Jesus in a place that we call Perea, the land of Perea. And what's so significant about that is that the land of Perea is exactly Herod's jurisdiction. So there's a lot that's going on here. A couple of reasons why the question that the Pharisees are posing is so controversial is first, it could cause him to lose his ministry or a large part of his constituency if he offends a bunch of his followers. But also it could cause him to lose his life if he happens to offend King Herod. So now the table is set. You guys understand the context. It's not an academic question for us, but it certainly was not an academic question for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we call being between a rock and a hard place. Being put on the spot. But I want you to notice as we continue through the details how Jesus responds to the question. Instead of taking the bait, instead of listing off names of the theologians that he wants to side with, Jesus sort of reverses the direction of the conversation. Rather than the Pharisees testing him, he will now test them. In verse 3, he says, what did Moses command you? So he's turning the tables. He's reversing the burden of proof. And the thing that's very telling here, and we'll get to this again later, is that they skip right past Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They just jump right over those passages, even, those, even though they were also written by Moses. And Moses has much to say in those texts. Moses talks about the nature and the purpose and the expectation of marriage. What do the Pharisees do? They jump over that. And they go directly To Deuteronomy 24. Look at what they say in verse 4. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her, to send her away. Now before we just saw that there are two different schools of thought and this is where you need to know a little bit more about what's actually going on here between Shammai and Hillel. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses is addressing a problem that arose in his own day. The problem is that a man would go out and marry a woman and bring her into his home. And then after a little while, he'd get tired of her. And if he decided that he made a bad decision, he would say, you know, I'm really sorry, but I feel like I made a bad decision in marrying you and making you my wife. And in that day, you know what? He actually had the power to kick her out of his house and to send her away. And so you see, the problem in Moses' day wasn't very different than the problem in our own day. Divorce was rampant in Israel. This is the problem that Moses has to deal with. So in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4 Moses addresses this issue and he regulates the process of divorce, but he does this as a protection for the women who were being rejected by their husbands. So if you look at the passage, you'll notice that there are at least two protections that are afforded to the woman in the text. First of all, Moses says, and you can turn to Deuteronomy 24 because I'll read the whole text in just a minute. I want to give you a summary of what it says. There's two protections that I see in this text for women. First of all, the man can only divorce his wife if he finds that there was uncleanness in her life. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. But secondly, if he decides to divorce her, he's required to provide her with a certificate of divorce. And this is very, very important. A certificate of divorce was necessary because it documents the history of her marriage and her divorce. It documents it. It's proof that she was married before. It gives a justification for why she's no longer a virgin, but it also demonstrates that she was previously married to this particular man, and she was divorced by this particular man. And that's important because if she goes on to marry someone else and she gets rejected again because it was all too common for this to happen to women, the first man that put her away was not allowed to return to that relationship. He was not allowed to bring her back to himself. That's The point of Deuteronomy 24. We'll talk about why all that's important. Let me just read the whole passage, verses 1 through 4. You can follow me in your scriptures so you can get a sense of of what's going on here. Moses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband also detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or even if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, Then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been so defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Okay. You can see from this exactly uh, how marriage and divorce were just a mess in Moses' day. Just an absolute mess. A woman could be married and then rejected several times with absolutely no regulation, absolutely no protection, absolutely no accountability for the man. He could do this over and over and over again. And you can, you can sort of peer into that, you could peek into that just from the words of Deuteronomy 24. And so this passage, this piece of legislation was the way that Moses had to deal with this problem at least for the time being. He had to regulate this. The problem, however, is that even after Moses laid down the legislation, the people immediately tried to manipulate the doctrine. And so by the time we get to Jesus' own day, there was a clear divide between the various schools of rabbinic teaching. So now we come to Shammai and we come to Hillel. And the whole controversy revolves around what this word uncleanness or more literally, the Hebrew means indecency really means. Well, Shemai, the conservative theologian, argued that uncleanness refers to sexual immorality. And so what this would mean is that if a man marries a woman and finds out that she was not a virgin, but had previously been sexually immoral, then he could lawfully put her away so long as he gives her a certificate of divorce and so on. Hillel, on the other hand, argued that the indecency can refer to anything that displeases the man. And trust me, when I say anything, I I mean literally anything. Hillel was such a liberal theologian. He was known to teach that if a woman was cooking and had burned some of the food while she was cooking, the man could literally put her away. You'll read about this in Jewish sources. Not only that, but if a woman was talking, if she was speaking and her voice was loud enough for the neighbors to hear her, the man could file for divorce, right? And so those are just some very extreme examples to show how absolutely crazy this thinking was back then. These these are the rabbis talking. But at the same time, the reasons that people get divorced today, I would argue, are not much better at least in the majority of cases usually it's not because of an act of adultery but for something that the modern court system calls irreconcilable differences with absolutely no explanation attached to that phrase that's code that's code language those are code words and they really stand for i don't feel like being married anymore and i'm not willing to put in the effort to make this marriage work that's what irreconcilable difference actually means am I lying about that absolutely not this is the world in which we live it's a sad reality this is what we call no fault divorce no one did anything wrong I'm not faulting my spouse my spouse is not faulting me I've just come to the place in my life where I realize I made a big mistake shouldn't have married this guy shouldn't have married this girl no fault divorce Well, there's no support for that kind of thing anywhere in God's word. In fact, if you look at what Jesus teaches on the whole subject, you can see that he actually was not afraid to take sides in this debate. He won't mention Hillel and he won't mention Shammai, but it's very, very clear that he sides with the conservative camp and he sides with Shammai. If you look at Matthew chapter 19, you can actually see that because there's a parallel passage to our text and uh, Matthew provides a few more details for us than Mark does in our passage. There you'll notice that the Pharisees' question is even recorded in a more specific way. In verse 3, they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? That little phrase is attached in Matthew In Mark. We don't see it. And then notice also in verse nine, Jesus also gives an answer that's a lot more specific. Jesus allows for only one exception. He says in verse nine, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So it's not like Jesus is, you know, shying away from the question. We shouldn't shy away from the question. Our Lord Jesus Christ had boldness and confidence in God's Word. We need to have boldness and confidence in God's Word too. But Jesus helps us with Deuteronomy 24 because he knows that the uncleanness in Deuteronomy 24 or the indecency actually does refer to sexual immorality. He simply tells the truth and he lets the chips fall where they may. Right? So he's giving us a good example that we should follow. However, even though I made a beeline to the end and I, I showed Jesus his hand and I showed you what position he actually takes in this matter there are still a couple of things that we need to see in mark's account that are going to round off the exposition of this text remember one of the things that's going to help us is to know that mark and matthew are speaking to two different audiences you know matthew adds these little details why because he's writing to a jewish audience so those who are reading the gospel are like yes We know about this debate. Can a man divorce his wife just for any cause? That would be the teaching of Hillel. But Mark doesn't uh, necessarily add all of these details. He wants to make it more straightforward and understandable because he's writing to a Roman audience. And we can see how that will affect what he says in the end. So depending on who the audience is, the gospel writer will be led, yes, by the wisdom and spirit of God, to either add or withhold certain details that are either relevant or irrelevant to their given audience, okay? So just keep that in mind. When we look at Mark's account, there are a few things I want you to notice. First of all, Jesus demonstrates that the Pharisees are using the wrong passage of Scripture to answer the question that they're asking, Deuteronomy 24 is not about why it's okay to divorce your wife. That's that's not what Deuteronomy 24 is about. It's actually a warning to the man who would dare divorce his wife. Think about that. Those are two completely different propositions. This passage is here to say to the man, stop and think about this very carefully. Make sure that you're not under the impression, the mistaken impression, that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. You don't realize how many times a man thinks he wants to leave his wife only to find out years later that he should have never let her go. That's what Deuteronomy 24 is saying. If you disgrace and disrespect your wife by sending her away, you can never have her back. Even if after her next husband passes away or happens to divorce her as well, even in that situation, you can never have her back. In other words, this passage is not designed to be a justification for divorce. It's designed to discourage people from going down this particular road. Notice that Jesus doesn't put this piece of legislation into a positive moral command. Just read the text. There's no positive moral command. Rather, he says that it was only because of the hardness of the human heart that this passage even exists in the first place. So you can't just say, well, Moses said that if we want to put away our wives, all we have to do is write up a certificate of divorce, and then we're free from the vows that we made. Think about it like this. There's a huge difference between a command and a provision. There's a difference between a command and a provision. Moses is not commanding. He's not encouraging divorce. He's simply simply regulating an abuse of the marriage covenant. Let me give you an example. In 1 John chapter 2, the apostle John gives us a comforting word, but it's also a challenging word at the same time. He says, My little children, these things I write unto you so that you do not sin. Then he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Can you imagine if someone were to take that passage and try to make it say the exact opposite? Look, the apostle John says that we can sin all we want, because if we sin, then we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We could do whatever we want. We could sin however we want because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That's not John's intention. John wants to discourage us from sinning. And yet he knows that because of the hardness of our hearts, we will end up sinning in different ways throughout the Christian life. And so he tells us that God has made provisions for his people in the death of his son. But the death of Jesus is not a permission to sin freely. And likewise, Deuteronomy 24 is not a permission to divorce freely. That brings us to the second thing that we need to see from Mark. When Jesus asked the Pharisees what Moses commanded, they showed their hand when they went to the passage that they did. What they should have done is they should have gone to where Moses speaks directly to the nature, purpose, and expectation of the marriage covenant. And that would be found in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. And so notice that at this point, Jesus takes the discussion back to Genesis. Look at verses 5 through 8 in our text. Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote that precept but from the beginning of the creation god made them male and female for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh jesus does a number of different things here i want to pull these out for you i want you to see them clearly as you look at the text first of all jesus quotes moses in genesis 127 God made them male and female. Why does he do that? It's to show that there's a real compatibility between a man and a woman, and that's by God's creation design. So these two genders, and yes, there are only two genders. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, just checking. You guys, make sure you don't go to sleep on me. (laughs) These two genders were designed for one another. In a very special way. We should also note that there was only one man and one woman in the original marriage. I think that's a fair observation. So that means polygamy is a distortion of the marriage covenant. Polygamy is actually a sin. And when scripture also regulates that practice, it is not commanding it. It's not encouraging it. It's not approving of it. It's simply regulating the abuse of the marriage covenant for the time being. Okay, That's the first thing Jesus is doing. The second thing Jesus does is he quotes Genesis 2.24. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now the Hebrew word for the term joined is a very, very strong word. It's like Jesus is saying that a man and his wife have been glued together. Their lives have been merged together as if they've been grafted into one another. And the bond is so great that Moses says that the two have become one flesh. But notice that Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to draw out more implications of Moses' teaching. And he does that in two very, very important ways. First of all, he emphasizes the one flesh union and he tells us that this is a reality. That's very important. This is not a hypothetical possibility. It's not like when two people get married, then all of a sudden they're, they're hypothetically one. Uh, so long as they learn to get along and so long as they adopt each other's preferences and desires and grow into something beautiful. No, by virtue of the marriage ceremony itself, the two have become one flesh. And this is a reality. It is consummated through intimate relations. But it is ratified by the covenant that they made before God and before many witnesses. So Jesus emphasizes that this one flesh relationship is a reality. But then he demonstrates that the union of the marriage was not the work of man. He emphasizes that this was the work of God. Notice, marriage is not a human institution. It's a divine institution. That means when two people are joined together, God is the one who is acting in the ceremony. Have you ever thought about it like that? Let me give you an illustration. Here I am preaching God's word. But insofar as what I'm preaching is the very word of God, who's really speaking to you? Is it a man? If I simply take what God has said and I give you the very word of God, who's speaking to you? God is speaking to you, not me. These aren't my words. These aren't my teachings. When we bring a young child up here and I pour that water over that child and I say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you think I have the power to baptize a person into Jesus Christ? I'm just an instrument. I'm performing that ceremony according to the institution that Jesus Christ gives us in his word. I'm using the Trinitarian formula. So when that takes place, it's not a mere man pouring mere water. It's a divine institution wherein God himself is acting and performing his will. I could go on and on, but let's go back to marriage. Jesus demonstrates that the union of the marriage was not the work of man. It's the work of God. The minister is just an instrument or the judge or whoever happens to do it is just an instrument. But it's the Holy Spirit who actually binds the two people together. And Jesus says that God has joined them together. That's what Jesus says. And then the last thing that Jesus does is he adds a command to the teachings of Moses. Based on all the different things that are true about marriage, he says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's his command and prohibition. So Jesus couldn't be more clear about where he stands on the issue. The Pharisees ask their question, and Jesus gives them his answer. Anytime a man divorces his wife for any other reason than the fact that she goes out and commits adultery, that man is acting against the will of God. By his own will, by his own power, in his own name, he is acting. But he's actually tearing apart the very thing that God himself had put together. Now, as we close, I want to touch on just one more point that I think we need to see. When the disciples ask Jesus to expound upon this issue later on in the house, privately, away from the crowds, Jesus makes a very important point. He says that the man who divorces his wife for unlawful reasons and goes and marries another woman is committing adultery against his first wife. That's what Jesus says. I know that's a hard saying and there are some qualifications, but I don't want this to die the death of a thousand qualifications. We'll talk about all that later. But there's something that's very interesting about what Jesus says here. And notice that Mark, not Matthew, but Mark is very careful to include this in his account. And that is this. Listen carefully. Everything that Jesus says about the men who divorce their wives Applies equally to the women who divorce their husbands. He says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, the reason why Mark is emphasizing this again is because of his audience. According to the history of the two peoples, Jewish women were never allowed to divorce their husbands. They were never in such a position to be able to divorce their husbands. But in the Roman world, women would initiate the divorce in many, many, many cases. And so here I have to say that uh, there's a direct application to us once again. Statistically speaking, the vast majority of divorces that take place in our society today are initiated by women. We just know that. If you don't know that, it's not hard to find out. And the man has little to no choice, little to no decision in the matter. And so what Jesus is saying here is very clear. It doesn't matter if you're the husband or the wife. You have no right to divorce your spouse unless it comes to pass that your spouse has committed adultery. And even then isn't even commanded. It's not even required. You might even wonder, is it even expected in view of the larger biblical theology that we have in scripture, but it is simply allowed as one lawful option. Now, the worst part of the whole thing is that today that's not the way we operate. Just as the vast majority of the divorces today are initiated by women, so also the vast majority of these divorces have absolutely no biblical grounds at all. And so it's very, very, very important that we grasp what Jesus is teaching in our text. When that's the case, the person who divorces their spouse for unbiblical reasons is left with two choices. We'll end with this. Either they can remain unmarried or they can return to their spouse. And again, that second option right there, returning to the spouse, assumes that the divorce party hasn't already remarried because then Deuteronomy 24 kicks in and it's not possible. But the apostle Paul sums up this whole thing very neatly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 10 and 11. Listen to what Paul says. He says, now to the married I command you, but then he says, not I, but the Lord, the Lord commands you. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried. Or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. With all of these necessary qualifications to Paul's statement, put them all in there, let us at least take this statement to heart for what it's designed to give us. Let us, rather than look for ways to justify the act of divorce, cling to what the Bible actually teaches. Where we have sinned, let us confess our sin. Where there's still time to be reconciled to our previous spouse, let us be reconciled or else remain unmarried. And where the situation lies beyond the hope of reconciliation, where there's absolutely no more options for us to get our previous spouse back, we do need to recognize that we can move on with our lives with a clear conscience before the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is there as the grounds and basis for the forgiveness of all of our sins that we bring and confess to God. So so unbiblical divorce is a sin in the eyes of God, but the Bible never says it's the unforgivable sin. So there is a sense in which we can move on with all of these qualifications in place with a clear conscience before the Lord our God. And so for those who might be wrestling with this issue, maybe they have questions that they want to ask, I would encourage you to come and talk to the elders because every situation is very, very different. There's all kinds of moving parts in these situations. And there's no way a message like this can speak directly to your situation. But if you're wrestling through this and you have questions, come and talk to the elders. We'll be happy to pray with you and give you the instruction that comes from God's word. But make sure that you're willing to put whatever answer that you receive from the word of God into practice in your life. That's where you'll find the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ.